Welcome to the latest episode of Risk and Regulation Rundown, the podcast where we share our views and insights on hot topics in financial services, risk and regulation. I'm your regular host, Tessa Norman, and in this episode, we're discussing sustainability reporting, taking a deep dive into the EU's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, known as CSRD for short. I'm delighted to be joined by two expert guests who are joining us to share their insights, Director Esther Rawling and Senior Manager Lucas Penfold, both who join us from PwC's Sustainability Practice. We're going to be talking about how firms can overcome the practical challenges of implementing the regime, how CSRD fits into the broader sustainability reporting landscape, and what firms can expect from the broader policy and regulatory agenda in the year ahead. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tessa. Hi, Tessa. So regular listeners might remember that we discussed the CSRD regime in an episode last year back in June, but eight months is a long time in financial services regulation and a lot has changed since then. So Lucas, do you want to kick off by giving us a bit of a refresher on CSRD and how it impacts firms? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks, Tessa. And yeah, you're right. I mean, we've seen um, quite a few developments in this space since we we last spoke back in um, back in June uh, last year on, on the topic. Um, I mean, I think the most significant change um, is that we've had the, the final adopted delegated act for the sector agnostic ESRS standards. Um, and that, that was sort of really acting as a, a pretty big trigger um, for, for activity across the, the FS sector. Um, just thinking a little bit around, I suppose, what, what, what the standards are, um, what, what these are trying to do is set out some um, specific data points that firms are going to have to be reporting against across a range of different sustainability topics, whether it's environmental issues like climate change, biodiversity, pollution, through to um, social topics, governance topics as well. Um, there are there are 12 um, different standards in total, um, although I think a, a really important principle in CSRD is that firms only need to be reporting on the topics that are material for their, for their organisation. Um, CSRD applies a, a double materiality uh, lens to, to materiality, so it's considering um, the impacts that the organisation has on sustainability factors, so impact on the environment, impact on society, but also thinking about how sustainability factors are, are impacting on the organisation, so thinking about the risks and the opportunities it creates for for a business. Um, so, you know, I think Assessing materiality is, is, is clearly a, a critical component of any um, CS, CSRD implementation programme. Um, the scope of CSRD is, is very broad. Um, so we're seeing a, a lot of um, financial services clients find themselves caught by this regulation. Um, uh, if they have any sort of activity in the EU, so whether it's you know, listed securities on, a, on an EU exchange, um, maybe they'll they'll exceed some of the, the sort of turnover and balance sheet thresholds that are set out in the regulation, um, or it might be that um, you know you, you have a, a non-EU parent that has significant activity um, in the European Union. There are a number of different ways that organisations are finding themselves in scope, which means you know it's really quite a far-reaching regulation in terms of the. The, the firms that it's, it's catching. Um, there, there are various reporting deadlines that firms are going to have to consider. So just to call out a couple, um, something we're seeing at the moment, many of our FS clients are going to need to be reporting um, in, in FY25 on, on FY24 data because um, many of them are already in scope of NFRD, which is the predecessor to CSRD. Another, another sort of ESG-related acronym there. Um, but this means that essentially, you know, you're going to have to be gathering that data now, um, this year, 
for, for reporting next year. So it's really something that that firms are having to engage with today. Um, there's also another sort of key date I think we're, we're sort of seeing come up a lot in, in conversations with clients is the FY29 reporting deadline. So that's something that applies to, to any sort of non-EU firm that, that is in scope of the, the regulation. So it, even that, it might seem like a few years off, but what we're seeing and what we're hearing is there's just a lot of um, upfront steps that firms are going to need to be working through, whether it's thinking about materiality, gathering the data, and and, and really sort of prepare, making the changes to, to their different frameworks to, to make that reporting. So not to underestimate just quite how much work goes into um, uh, sort of uh, pulling together that information for reporting, even though it might seem on the face of it a few years off yet. So for those firms who, who are already gathering that that data, as you mentioned, Lucas, um, Esther, do you want to give us a bit of a sense of what that means in practical terms and, 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 and tell us a bit more as well about where firms are at in their implementation journey? Yes, Tessa. Um, just to pick up on a couple of points that Lucas mentioned. So he said basically the first set of firms are in scope now for reporting in FY25. And if you are in this bucket of firms and you haven't started, then I suggest this moves to the top of your to-do list and you really focus and start prioritizing. In terms of data, another point that Lucas mentioned, don't be lulled into that false sense of security that you're reporting in, in 2025 or 2024. There are a huge number of data points where you need to start collecting those at the start of the financial year. So thinking about this well in advance of the 1st of January. You should have thought about it, but if you haven't, um, you need to start moving on that quickly. But it just takes time. And, you know, to the point around the group that comes in in 2029, you know, just thinking about the fact that you'll need to gather a bunch of data at the start for 2028, so you can't leave it until 2028 to start. You really need to start your planning towards the end of um, FY27. The other thing that I'm seeing is that you know, most firms are well on their way in terms of the ones that are in scope. They have kicked off some sort of CSRD program at the end of last year. So again, if you're not, then please do focus on that. The, most banks are either in the thick of their double materiality assessment or they've completed their double materiality and are and, and now turning to that data challenge. And in, in most instances, because CSRD applies at the entity level, There'll be a number of data points, especially around climate, where firms would not have been disclosing this information at the entity level just yet. So being able to identify where either you've got missing data at the entity level or where you do have the data, but you need to figure out how to disaggregate it is going to be really key. And for those banks who are, um, you know, in the thick of implementation, as I think you put it, what are some of the pain points that you're seeing and, and, and some of the issues that they're really grappling with at the moment? So I think the first issue that I see is because CSRD is such a broad regulation and it touches so many different functions, getting the right individuals around the table and assigning ownership is really key because there's a number of disclosures where you'll find you need inputs across several functions. So identifying who's actually going to be on the hook for what is really, really key. So being able to define those roles and responsibilities quite early on um, can be a bit of a struggle. The next um, area is where you've got legal entity versus group um, disclosures. So for global groups, getting this dynamic is, is, is really, really important especially where the parent doesn't come into scope until later on. So, for example, you know, where there are policy and process gaps, 
being able to do those at the highest level so that you disseminate them and you know you only basically do this once versus taking a more tactical approach where you do it at a legal entity level and then you need to revisit it at group um you know it's just not efficient from a resource perspective but also there's a risk of different territories applying the rules in a different way so managing that dynamic and then also on that group versus legal entity point as well because the CSRD disclosures are so far-reaching and they're actually really in-depth in terms of what they require firms to disclose being thoughtful of where things are being disclosed at the subsidiary level ahead of the group is really key and thinking about how that could potentially impact the group especially when you've got you know various users of the um, disclosures including regulators so for example if you're a U.S. headquartered bank, and you make certain disclosures in the EU subsidiary, you know, how might the SEC view that disclosure? So just being thoughtful of of those kinds of things is really important. And how can firms overcome some of those challenges that that you've talked through? So I think basically don't underestimate the effort that's required. You know, it's easy to to just think that this is just another disclosure, you'll muddle through it, but it, it really does require a lot of effort buy-in at the most senior stakeholder levels of the organization is really key because some of the decisions around methodologies, around disclosures, around, you know, regulatory risks that you might need to, may want to run, um, having people on site to make those decisions quickly is going to be really important. Education is important because it's easy to take for granted that people within the sustainability space may know about CSRD and may be fairly comfortable but with what it involves. But when it impacts functions like corporate services and HR and other functions that may not be as comfortable with this with the disclosures, then going in with the right level of education so they understand what is required is really important. And engagement, engagement across all the functions, again, is really key. And the last thing I'll end on here is just defining that ownership up front so people know what they're on the hook for or they know where their handoffs or where they need to input into something um, is also really important. I think that point about um, stretching across, you know, such a broad range of the of the organisation is, is really interesting and something that we're seeing in, in other evolving regulatory regimes. Diversity inclusion is, is, is one that springs to mind as well. So that's really interesting. Um, and Lucas, how does that compare to, to what you're seeing among some of our other clients, so particularly thinking about clients in the asset and wealth management space or insurance firms? Yeah, I mean, a lot of sort of common common themes there, I would I would. I would say, sort of cropping up across asset managers and and insurance. But um, I think generally my observation would be that asset managers and insurers are a little bit further behind. Um, Many firms that that I've been speaking to recently in in those sectors, I think, are are starting to mobilise a a CSRD programme now. So they're kind of getting it up and running. Um, Whereas, you know, as we've heard from, from Esther, I think, you know, banks are possibly a little bit further along um but you know clearly there will be some exceptions and and some firms in 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 asset management and insurance sectors are a little bit further along as well um you know some are in the middle of of sort of legal entity scoping and and double materiality assessments for example so yeah i think there's a point around segment of the the fs sector having to sort of um sort of move move forward a little bit quicker than perhaps they they have been to, to date um just sort of more more broadly, I, I guess, just thinking about some of the challenges that um, I, I've been observing in in the asset management and, and insurance sectors. I think there's sort of three that that spring to mind. I think the first is around um, the complexity that, that 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 sort of goes into the scoping exercise. Um, 
So, you know, this is a complex regulation and there are lots of quirks as to how different firms are finding themselves um, caught by the regulation. So, for example, you know, if I think about the asset management sector, you know, some are finding that certain fund structures are potentially in scope um, and, and that brings with them lots of reporting obligations, which perhaps they you know haven't previously been used to to, to this extent. Um, yeah, I, I know certainly in the sort of some of our private equity clients, for example, they're also having to think about, okay, well, how are their portfolio companies um, impacted by all of this too? And do they have a role in supporting the portfolio companies meeting their own um, uh, sort of obligations under CSRD? So there's, I think there's a lot of sort of complexity around um, application and scoping. And the second point I'd, I'd sort of pull out is around um, value chain and the value chain boundaries that you put around the, the DMA exercise. Um, particularly, um, again, if you sort of think about the, the sort of coverage of the portfolio, um, you know, expanding beyond the, the sort of own operations um, when thinking about materiality and, and running through the DMA um, can, can be quite complex. Um, you, know, you know, there's sort of associated value chain um, considerations around the portfolio. That just adds further complexity to the exercise. So that's something that we're, we're sort of hearing more and more about um, in, in these sectors. Um, and then the third point, I think, is around data. So you know, just lots of, and it, and it links with that point around value chain and, and sort of portfolio coverage as well. It's just a lot of data points that um, potentially need to be reported on. Um, so to my earlier point around, you know, the purpose of the DMA exercise is to really sort of focus in on what is material to your business and what really matters um, and, and sort of using that to drive you know what you report um yeah i think the the, the potential sort of um, volume of data that you need to be collecting and reporting against just um demonstrates just just how important getting that dma exercise is um for firms in the, that operate in um the asset management insurance sectors as well so that's something we're hearing quite a lot about as well so it sounds like there's lots of sort of complexities and really kind of technical issues there that, that firms are having to work through. But I imagine it's also important that firms sort of don't lose sight of the almost kind of higher level view and, 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 and the bigger picture, because CSRD, of course, is just one of a, a number of sustainability reporting initiatives that, that, that many firms are going to have to um, implement. I mean, how are you seeing um, firms kind of manage that interplay with some of the other regulatory initiatives? Yeah, really, really good question Tessa so I mean yeah I agree I mean take, taking a st step back from from CSRD there is a, a very busy agenda around sustainability reporting um, CSRD is, is clearly a major part of this and and you know arguably the sort of key priority for firms today um, but it is part of a much wider landscape that firms are going to need to be um, engaging with so yeah the ISSB standards is a, is a clear example um, this is a major initiative it's it's a global piece you've then got questions around you know how that's going to be adopted locally in different countries so you know, if you're an FS firm with a a, a sort of broad global footprint, which many of, of our clients are, um, potentially you're going to need to be implementing the ISSB standards uh, in, a, in a different way across some of the different entities um, uh, across your group structure, depending on where, where they're based. So, yeah, definitely a lot of sort of complexity here. Um, in, in, in the UK, um, we know that the intention is to, to implement the ISSB standards as part of um, uh, uh, an economy-wide SDR framework and there's a process that's been um, established to um, uh, sort of essentially bring the, the um, ISSB standards into, into the UK framework. Um, the aim is to arrive at a, a, a UK version of the standards by June um, this year, 2024, um, and then that will be the trigger for incorporating 
the standards into formal regulation. Um, and we already know that the FCA wants to move quickly with the rules for, for listed companies, potentially applying them as soon as January 2025. So, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of different moving parts here um, and, and um, CSRD is set within a much broader context. I think one observation I'd, I'd make is that, you know, there are a lot of overlaps between CSRD and ISSB and, you know, other SR regs like TCFD, for example. Um, and that's then made even more complex, I think, for, for FS firms who are also sort of having to grapple with product level requirements as well. They think about regulations like SFDR, which have been particularly prominent in the asset management sector in recent years. Um, so it's going to be really important that, that firms take a step back, consider some of the overlaps in, um, you know, the different materiality assessments that they need to perform under these different regulations, um, you know, where there are overlaps and differences in disclosures and data points, um, really to sort of take that broader holistic view to try and drive efficiencies in the way that you're responding to to, to, to these different reporting initiatives rather than having to um, repeat the same or a similar exercise multiple times for different regulations. So there's definitely a sort of an efficiency point here. And I think increasingly we're, we're, we're seeing firms apply a, a value creation lens to, to all of this and how they're responding to this agenda as well, um, rather than purely seeing it as a, as a compliance exercise. So, you know, for example, I was having a conversation with a, with a client um, just the other day around using the CSRD um, double materiality assessment really to try and um, think about um, managing, um, you know, potential sort of value erosion in their business through sort of enhancing the risk management frameworks within their their business, but also using it as an exercise to try and identify new activities, new markets they can operate in, new product opportunities and so on to, to really apply that value creation lens too. So I think increasingly we're seeing firms see that strategic value flow through from, from responding to the different um, regulatory initiatives. And Esther, is there anything that, that you'd add to that in terms of how you're seeing clients manage and, and, and respond to this? Um, just before I address that question, just to Lucas's last point, I think, you know, that's so spot on because I think the focus to date has been on managing risk. And I think clients are focused less on the opportunities and, and the impact side of things. And I think because and CSRD, I think, is maybe one of the catalysts here because it's now forcing clients to think through the DMA about the impacts and opportunities. Then you've got that value creation, but coming out as clients are uh, starting to think about it more thoughtfully and a bit deeper. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think that that's spot on there. In terms of the point around regulatory divergence and even regulatory convergence, because you've got some overlap, definitely an area that clients are focused on and see as a concern. And chatting with clients more recently, I'm starting to see clients starting to think about their disclosure strategy. So looking at the regulatory landscape over the next three to five year time horizon and thinking about the wider implications for the organization, but also thinking about, you know, when they're addressing CSRD now by looking by looking out to that time horizon, they could they're possibly considering things that they mean they may need to address anyhow in three years so to the extent that you could more efficiently address it now then let's think about that and then also thinking about you know where the disclosures go and how that impacts you know for example the control framework that they need around the disclosures etc because with csrd as an example you've got limited assurance in the first year gradually building up to full assurance so making sure that you've got the robustness around um the the disclosures in the same way that you've got financial disclosures is really key. So I think 
having that more strategic approach to, to sustainability disclosures is definitely um, an approach that we see clients thinking more and more about. And, and given the importance of that sort of horizon scanning piece and, uh, and the need to look further ahead, um, Lucas, you know, if we think about some of those other initiatives you mentioned, what are some of the kind of key dates and, 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 and developments that we expect, um, you know, over the next 12 months or so that firms should really be looking out for? Yeah, so uh, twenty twenty four is is definitely going to be another busy year for for developments in the in the reporting um, space in in sustainability. Um, I, I'd call out just a, a few things. Um, one of which I've, I've alluded to already, I think. But um, I, I mentioned the the sort of expectation that we'll see more clarity on um, how the UK is going to be adopting the ISSB standards by by the end of June or July. Um, and then there'll be a subsequent FCA consultation on embedding that within um, rules for, for listed companies. So that's certainly something that a lot of our FS clients will, will need to um, closely follow. Um, we're hoping to also hear more details about how the standards are going to be incorporated into other areas of the regulatory framework. So, for example, the Companies Act, um, which, again, will be will be relevant to, to FS clients. Um, second point, I would I would just highlight is um the transition plan task force work so um the the tpt um framework was um uh, finalized um at the end of uh 2023 um and there was some sector guidance um uh, that were consulted on um uh for essentially how to apply the tpt framework across different um sectors including banking asset management and, and asset owners and actually pwc drafted the the banking sector guidance um so so we expect you know that that's something that will conclude in in 2024 um and and really the expectation is that's going to be a catalyst for for much greater focus on transition planning and and, and disclosure around transition planning uh, across the fs sector um this year um, and then the final point I'd, I'd highlight, um, something to keep an eye out for, is um, the, the SDR um, proposals f- um, for, for asset managers. So w- we've got final rules in place um, for, uh, for for the asset management sector. Um, they finalised back in November 2023. Um, but we're expecting a further consultation um, imminently on on how the regime will apply to um, portfolio management services um that that's something that was uh, excluded from the final rules that were um from from november last year um so but you know that that's an area that's clearly going to have implications for for a lot of a lot of different fs firms at performing that that activity and given that a lot of that change is driven by, you know, government um, initiatives and, and impetus as, as, as well as changes driven by regulators, do, do you see any changes in that sort of, you know, pace of reform as, as we look further ahead? You know, in our um, last month's episode, we heard from Lord Gavin Barwell about um, the sort of potentially more fractured and sort of uncertain political landscape for this year and, and beyond and how that's leading to um, greater divergence in, um, in policy areas such as climate. And do, do you see that sort of political landscape you know having an impact on on the progress of some of those sustainability initiatives yeah thank thanks tessa so i I think the big question here is whether we'll see a change of government following the upcoming election this year um and and if we do see a labor labor government if the polls turn out to be accurate um we can expect to see a significant focus i think on on sustainability um Labour's recently just dropped its twenty eight billion pounds green investment package, um, which was sort of a, an initiative focused at, at driving more sustainable growth in the economy. Um, there has been quite a lot of debate around how achievable this would would have been given the the current fiscal headroom. So 
in a sense, perhaps unsurprising that that, that it sort of backtracked on this commitment. Um, Labour has, however, just recently published a, a financial services strategy um, and, and a key priority um, uh, as part of, of, of its effort on financial services is around um, ensuring that the UK financial services sector remains a global hub for sustainable finance. So there's a really strong commitment to the whole green finance agenda. Um, so, so for example, we saw a commitment to implementing the SDR framework, um, TPT. Uh, uh, it's clear that Labour remains committed to establishing a UK green taxonomy. Um, and it's it was also talking a lot about sort of new areas of focus on things like green mortgages, um, greening the housing stock and so on. So I think you know, really clear that Labour is, is is going to be very focused on this. Um, so yeah, clearly there's going to be some uncertainty about the outcome of the election, um, but we're operating in an environment where I think both the Conservatives and Labour have made strong commitments to sustainable finance. So I don't expect this agenda to be um, disappearing anytime, anytime soon. I think it is very much here to stay. And what's your view on that pace of change, Esther? Yeah, I, I completely agree with Lucas on this one. I think it's tempting to be lulled into a false sense of security that with the political landscape and the environment moving, that you know things might get delayed and you could be tempted to put some of this stuff on the back burner, but it's just not going away. And I think we can see that the regulation coming down the pipeline is just getting, it's more demanding in terms of what is required of firms. So I would suggest that, you know, keep pace, you know, with, in terms of with what you need to do in terms of thinking about the, what regulations you need to implement in terms of how you address it. And just know that it is not going away. <laughs> um, so don't be tempted to say, I'll put that off for next year. I think, you know, stay in focus on what you need to achieve, given that, you know, we know all of the ambitions of, you know, the UK in terms of being um, a sustainability um Center of Excellence and, you know, the wider commitments globally around net zero, et cetera, I would suggest staying the course and keeping the pace of implementation. So we've covered a lot of ground there. It's been fascinating. Thank you both so much. I mean, it'd be great to hear about those sort of broader sort of policy and and political challenges and and agenda, as well as the more sort of practical issues for firms. Um, So to kind of round off our discussion, I think let's let's bring it back to the more granular level um, where we started. Um, And I'd like to ask you both for sort of one final piece of of, of practical advice that you'd give to firms who are looking at um, CSRD and, and what it means for them. Esther, I'll start with you. I guess I think here my, you know, the first thing that I would think about is one, first of all, understanding when, when when you're in scope. And once you understand that, then begin planning and understanding what you need to do and by when. And also, sorry, I can't limit this to one, but I'll give one more. Just make sure that you engage all the right stakeholders early and they understand why this is important and what is going to be required of them. Thank you, Jessica. And Lucas. Um, I'll, I'll keep it short. I think that's a point I raised earlier and, and um, Esther touched on too. Approach this strategically. Um, so look to create value for your organisation rather than purely seeing it as a compliance exercise. Brilliant. Great to finish with some really uh, practical takeaways for our listeners. So thank you and thanks for joining the podcast. Um, And to our listeners, I really hope you've enjoyed this conversation and thank you for listening. As always, you can subscribe to future episodes and please rate and review this series as it helps other listeners to find us. If you'd like to hear more from us on risk and regulation, please look out for our regular publications on our website and we'll link to that in the show notes. And please join us next month for our next episode. (laughs) 